And the Child Led Them by Harry Allen Short Story Collection 101 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. And a Child Led Them The man that gave vent to that time-honored remark that boys'll be boys was only just about fifty percent right. He ought to have added that they can be little devils as well. A boy's brain reminds me a whole lot of the wheels in an alarm clock. Keeps right on buzzing along through the night when they ought to be resting like any other piece of self-respecting machinery. And just at the time when you're feeling the most secure and comfortable, going off with a rattle, like a fire engine going to a fire over a cobblestone pavement, and bringing you out of your dreams of the Elysian fields, maybe with your hair standing up on your head, like the quills upon the scrappy porcupine, as Bill Sharkspire puts it. Maybe you'll think all this foregoing is philosophy. But it ain't. It's facts. The philosopher who thinks he can fathom the internal workings of a thirteen-year-old boy ain't been born yet, and ain't gonna be for some time. And here's my example. When the 3.30 night express pulled into the railroad yards at Franklin in a soaking rain, Joe and I got off the head end of the baggage car in considerable of a hurry aided some by the conductor with the law on one hand and a seven-foot brakeman with a ten-pound lump of coal on the other. We watched the red taillights go out of sight down into the town with deep regrets in our innards and water blisters on our feet. And without saying a word, sometimes language is inadequate to express such feelings as ourn stumbled down the grade toward a lumber yard looming up out of the darkness on the river bank. I'm fond of lumber yards. There's so many dry, roomy places a traveler can stow himself away in. And almost directly, we run bang up against a three-cornered pile of boards covered over with pieces of old tin roofing to keep the weather out so's it could season properly. We fumbled round it looking for a foothold, and after scouting the three sides of the triangle, I give Joe a boost up, and he in turn passed a hand down to me. We shoved a hunk of the old tin to one side and dropped in out of the wet, feeling as if we'd run up against a branch of the shelter in arms. The earth felt smooth and dry underfoot almost too dry for the amount of rain that was patterned down on the tin over our heads, and I went down in my vest for a match to see what sort of place we'd struck. I dug out three or four, but they were too wet to be useful, so we snuggled up into one corner of the pile without any further curiosity and drifted off into as decent a sleep as our spongy condition had admit. We must have slumbered like the sleeping beauty in the fairy tale, dead to the world and all its works, for when I come out of my dreams of a porter house steak, big as a circus ring, 
surrounded by growing onions as high as Kansas corn. The daylight was creeping through the crevices in the pile, and I was wrapped hand, foot, and body with half a mile of old clothesline, and Joe still snoring alongside in even more a bound-up condition than I was myself. Hey, I says, rolling over against him and jarring him out of his trance. What in thunder do all these here restraint of personal liberties mean? Search me, he responds, trying to raise himself up to a settin' position and not succeeding. Certainly we didn't crawl in here in this shape. Probably not, I retorts, dry-like as I could, considering I was damp to the marrow of my bones. Probably not. Still, I continues, throwing in as much sarcasm as possible while laying flat on my back and trying to scratch my ear against the earth. There's no telling what a couple of dern fools like us'll do to themselves. Maybe we've been wandering in our sleep and got tangled up in a rope walk. Well, he says in a sort of resigned tone of voice, we won't have to stay here forever, for at the rate I'm thinning down in four or five days, I'll be able to crawl out of my duds through my shirt collar. Just then, I heard a scuffling kind of noise somewhere inside the enclosure, and up out of the earth, apparently, popped three kids of twelve or thirteen years old, wearing black muslin masks over their faces, old slouch hats fastened up on one side with crossed daggers cut out of tin, a la Roosevelt and one little cuss, armed with a big old-fashioned powder-and-ball Colt revolver a foot long. Good Lord, I murmured to myself as I caught sight of the outfit, if here ain't Deadwood Dick and his gang of road agents. St says the little murderer with the artillery, making motions at me with it, as if he intended to blow open my safe and expose my innard feelings. St and I hissed. Prisoners, he says in as low and impressive a tone as his little body would permit, you're going to be held for ransom. I hope you won't make it too expensive, I says, feeling it'd be safer to humor him, for fellers like my partner and myself here sell in the open market for about fifteen cents a bunch. One thousand ducats. A piece, he responds, putting a long dash betwixt each word. One thousand ducats apiece, or eternal imprisonment and torture. Not a very alluring prospect, I says, wondering if Joe and I couldn't pick up something out of this ransomed captive game. Not very alluring, but I don't suppose we're to be kept in this bailed hay condition for all that length of time, are we? And besides, I continues, seeing him hesitate, our relations live a thundering long ways from here. This feller, bumping against Joe, comes from Greenland's icy mountains, and I was brung up on Ingy's Coral Strand, and it'd be going against all the best authorities on the subject to keep us wrapped up for delivery until a purchaser comes along. Wait till I take a look, he says, 
and digging down into his jacket pocket, he pulls out a yeller-covered novel and goes poring over the pages like a minister trying to rake a new text out of the scriptures. You're right, he says at last, running his grimy little finger along the lines. It says here that the robber of the Black Hills always treated his prisoners with the greatest politeness and consideration after they'd swore not to try to escape. Swearing comes easy to us, I says, prompt-like. But look a little further and see if it don't say something about feeding prisoners in the meantime. Certainly real up-to-date captives ain't expected to board themselves while they're waiting to hear from home, are they? I don't know, he says, peering down through the eye-holes of his mask and flopping the leaves over like a printing press, shuffling out newspapers. But I guess maybe you're right again, for if you was working, you wouldn't be captives any longer. Uh-huh, here it is. The table was spread with finest damask and loaded down with jeweled vessels containing the choicest wines and viands. That's the place, I hastens to say, kind of fearful that a spiritual guide wouldn't contain anything in the Eaton line. That robber of the Black Hills knew what was what. Of course, I continues, noticing that all three bandits was somewhat puzzled as to how they'd reconcile a three-cornered lumber pile with a high-toned robber's cave. Of course, we don't want to pin you down to high-priced tonics and gold and silver plate, but how about some hunks of cold meat and a loaf of bread, or maybe a bouquet of smoked heron and a bag of crackers? That's all right, he responds, sort of joyful-like, to think we'd got around his textbook without actually breaking any precedents. Now, we'll untie ye, and a couple of us will sneak home and get some provisions while the other one stays on guard. You'll have to be guarded all the while, you know he says, wrestling away at a knot, except at night when we have to go home, for the book speaks of it time and again. Stick to the book, bub, I says, having a mighty friendly feeling for the author of it. Stick to the book, and we'll all have a good time. It took some little time to get our clotheslines off, and when we got up on our feet to stretch, the four-foot outlaws acted at first as if they were kind of sorry they'd let us loose. But when Joe and I sot down comfortably on the ground again without breaking up the band, they began to get quite friendly. Then I found out how they'd gotten into the enclosure without coming down through the roof the same as we had. They dug a tunnel out under one corner and plugged up nearly all the cracks betwixt the boards with the dirt and a lot of old bagging torn into strips, until the place was almost light and windproof. Then they'd sneaked in four or five soap boxes to set on, and decorated the sides of the triangle with a lot of pictures cut out of the police gazette and other instructing publications, until it looked quite homey to us. I guess we're slated to spend quite a spell in captivity, I says to Joe, as two of the band squirmed out of sight through the hole in the ground, while the remaining one squatted down on a box with a big pistol and began skimming through the book for further information 
on the art of taking and keeping prisoners. I hope some of em smoke cigarettes, Joe says, searching through his pockets to see if he couldn't scrape up the makings. It'd add greatly to our comfort while we're languishing here in durance vile, awaiting to hear from Andy Carnegie on the subject of ransom. It would so, I responds, but don't let's get too dumbed exactin' all at once, for I'm afraid it's gonna be something of a tax on em as it is to keep two such empty vessels as you and me filled up with eatables. For a half hour we sot there watchin' our guard goin' over and over the pages. Then we heard the scufflin' and up through the hole come the other two members of the band, loaded down with all sorts of stuff they'd swiped to make their captives comfortable. One outlaw had an old hoss blanket and worn-out quilt done up in a frazzled-lookin' last summer's hammock, while the chief himself toted a frying-pan with a handle dangling by one rivet, an old dark lantern, and best of all for us, a paper sack containing about a peck of potatoes, a sheaf of frankfurters, and a loaf of rye bread half the size of a railroad tie. How in thunder we gonna cook these terriers, I mused out loud when I caught sight of the sausages. It won't do to build a fire in here. The smoke'd give the snap away, and maybe we'd set the whole darn place on fire and get turned out of a happy home. That's so, says the bandit chief, taking off his mask in a moment of forgetfulness to wipe the sweat off his little freckled face. That's so. I'd clean forgot that we ain't got nothing to cook over. I'll fix that, says the kid who'd been doing guard duty. My father's got a tinner stove out in our barn. I'll chase home and get it, but you'll have to be careful of it, for he'll probably miss it, and I'll have to take it back after you've been ransomed. It'll get good care, son, I says. No self-respecting captive would misuse the housekeeping things. That'd be base ingratitude. And don't forget the charcoal for the fire, cautions Joe, as the little feller flopped down through the hole. He couldn't have lived far away, for in less than ten minutes we heard the fire-pot jangling along up through the tunnel, and in five more we had a fine little charcoal fire glowing away in the stove, a string of frankfurters simmering and sputtering on a wire over the coals, and a hatful of potatoes roasted in them. There ain't no use in describing how we et. It might make your mouth water. But we et until we couldn't hold down another morsel, and as the last hot dog disappeared down Joe's hatchway, Followed by the admiring glances of the three outlaws, he voiced my feelings to the limit when he lolled back on the hoss blanket and says in a self-satisfied tone, Me for captivity for the rest of my natural life. All the afternoon the whole of us sat there listening to the rain pounding down on the tin overhead, while we talked over the different methods of holding up railroad trains and stagecoaches, of burgling banks and sub-treasuries, comparing the fine points of the James boys with the rude coarse work of the Ford brothers, and dwelling feelingly on the more delicate episodes in the life of the late Mr. Tracy, 
Then it got near their supper time, and they hurried away, promising to be back directly with as many eatables as they could sequester without causing a famine in their households. When they got back, we were there. Nobody but an idiot would have flagged the eaten proposition, but it made me feel somewhat alarmed to see the chief bring out from under his jacket a pair of rusty old leg irons that looked as if they'd done duty previous to the Mexican War. What's them for? I demanded in my harshest tone of voice. For you, of course, he replies, setting down a glass can of preserves and a big chunk of cheese done up in a newspaper. I told you this morning nobody'd be here to guard you at night, and the robber of the Black Hills always left his prisoners chained in his lair whenever he was away on one of his forays. The book says so, he continues triumphant-like, and you can't go contrary to that, can you? Joe and I looked hard at each other. Clotheslines is one thing, and real solid welded-in-the-fire ankle bracelets was another. I'm somewhat opposing to this ironing business, says Joe to me, with a languishing look at the eatables. I worked in a laundry three days once and don't like to be reminded of the dark passages of my past life. Never mind, I says with a cautioning look at him. It wouldn't do to go against the recipe book. And look at all this here food that's waiting to be devoured. Let him put em on. It'll only be for tonight. We sopped down to a feed of homemade bread, cold meat, and other etceteries while the outlaw chief clinked on the leg irons, one cuff on me and the other on Joe, thereby chaining us together, and after we'd handed them a few more thrilling tales by the light of the old dark lantern, they left so's to get home before they was missed. After they'd gone, Joe and I laid down on the hoss blanket, pulled the old quilt up over us, and fastened leg to leg with a couple of feet of intervening chain betwixt us, went off to sleep to the music of the pattering rain, thanking our lucky stars that the robber of the Black Hills hadn't seen fit to mention handcuffs as well as leg irons. It must have rained like it did in Noah's time during the night, but being conscience clear and stomach full, we didn't notice it until some time along in the early hours of the morning when I roused up from a vision of swimming in a brewery vat to find our dungeon cell with two or three inches of water all over the floor. Hey, get up, I exclaimed to Joe in some alarm. The bedroom plumbing's busted and the waterworks is emptying itself in on us. Get up yourself, he grumbles back, making an effort to roll over, but not making a job of it on account of being coupled fast to me. Looky here, I says, shaking him by his shoulder. This ain't no joke to be incarcerated in a lumber pile with the tide rising an inch a minute and no life preservers handy. And then he sought up and began to sense how serious matters were. What's the cause of all this wet disturbance, he says in the dark. You got me, I replies, but the effect is here all right, and it looks to me like moving day for us was arriving on the run, and us seriously incapacitated 
from moving very fast on account of being hoppled. Lord, but what a miserable pair of dumb fools we are to let three kids go and handicap us in this shape just on account of a yeller novel and a bite to eat, he says in a sour tone of voice. We are, I meekly agrees. We're worse, and more of them. But standing here sopping up water and sarcasm don't help matters any. We're due to get out on the roof and take a look at the rising waters, or stay here till we contract a beautiful case of floating kidney. I made a couple of steps forward, not remembering we was bound together by such strong ties as we was, and down we went into a foot or more of water. Curse splusho! I've heard several men using cuss words but I've yet to hear such a variegated assortment of vocal trimming as riz up about the time we began trying to do the same. I just knelt there in the water in silent admiration at the way that man Joe tried to tell me what he thought of me. By and by, after he'd made his third or fourth pause for breath, I sorter suggested that the water was rising fast, and if he didn't want to go to heaven by the water route, he'd better get on to his feet. That brought him. He ain't fond of water applied internally, and carefully keeping step, we groped our way across to the side of the pile. I don't know any of you's ever been called upon to do it, but I'd like to say that climbing the side of a board pile in the middle of the night, with the water washing and churning around below, coupled by two feet of chain, to a feller breathing all sorts of hard luck words at everything human and otherwise, is one of the neatest tricks you'll ever perform. That is, providing your hands don't slip off the boards. Finally, after three or four souses and a careful timing of my left leg and his right one, we managed to shove the tin aside with our heads and drag our stomachs up across the top course of lumber. It was refreshing. The wind and rain blew into our faces as we laid there peering into the blackness for some sign of a dry port, but not a glimmer of light showed up in any direction. By looking down close to the base of our pile, we could make out a lot of loose timbers and boards floating down against our three-corner island, and it's a mighty good thing for us it was three-cornered, or it would have been wiped off the map, for every now and then some big hefty chunk had come jamming down against it and go sliding off at an angle for some place fifty or sixty miles further down the river. Looks to me, I says, as dry as I could, considering we was both soaked to the lining of our souls, as if we're going to have a freshet. Very probable, Joe responds, gritting his teeth together pleasant. Very. It also strikes me that we'd better wait right here till daylight, I continues, and see if them three little outlaws will come in a boat and take us ashore and remove these here bits of jewelry we're sportin'. I ain't in favor of waitin', Joe responds, breaking a four-syllable swear word off in metal. I'm as wet as I'll ever be, and I'm going ashore now. And with that expression of independence, he swung over without consulting me and made a plunge off into the uncertain deep. 
Maybe you've run across something in your life you figure was a limit of human endurance. But to be yanked off a ten-foot board pile by the leg into three or four feet of cold water on a night so dark you could cut buttonholes in it ought to put you up in Job's class for patience. I'm only human. Never confess to anything more so. And when I come spluttering to the top, I want to say that Joe's previous efforts in the conversational line had nothing on mine. I talked. I told him what a good-for-nothing, thoughtless, thankless cuss he was, and then for fear he'd mistake my meaning, stood there with the flood rushing by me up to my waist, and added to my first remarks till I could feel him shivering on the other end of the chain, as if I had a bite on a fish line. Then I quit, and started to climb back up on the board pile with him trying his meekest to keep step up the side. By four o'clock it got a little lighter, so as we could see if there was any other survivors besides us. Way off to the right, across about a quarter mile of yellow Russian water, we could see the railroad bank lined with folks catching timber and boards. And a half hour later, when they'd caught sight of us, perched up on our little three-cornered haven of hope, out shoved the boat, one feller rowing and another steering. Lord, but how we did dislike to be caught fastened together. But after you've sought for hours on a lumber pile, with the cold chills scooting over you, you'll confess to almost anything so's you can hug a fire while you're doing it. They steered over, and when they caught sight of our rusty leg irons, they certainly gazed at us aplenty. To escape prisoners from the county jail, I reckon, says the man at the oars. You're all the kinds of liar there is, responds Joe, as savage as a dull razor. We're two blown-in-the-glass wise guys who let three kids four foot high make dodd-gasted playthings of us. You say it well, says the man at the steering oar, giving me a look. But we'll have to turn you over to the police and let them figure on you just the same. You look a heap like the feller who busted into the laundry night before last. All right, I says, getting desperate. Go on with your nefarious plot to railroad a couple of half-witted hobos to jail. It ain't got nothing on our present predicament. And as they backed the boat up against the pile, Joe and I stepped down into it, two souls with but a single thought, two feet what beat as one. When we got up to the police station, I reckon more than two-thirds of the population of the town was trailing along behind to see whether we was bank burglars, counterfeiters, or only plain, everyday murderers. And when we was brought up in front of the desk, I felt a heap like the last. Where'd you collect the antiquities? inquired the desk sergeant. I told him, letting ourselves down as easy as I could, and he come around from behind the railing to take a look at the hardware. Great Thomas Burns, he said, after he'd examined our connections. These articles of wear and apparel must have been made prior to the lock industry. They only snap on. Any darn fool can take them off by pressing this dinky little spring. And I'm a prevaricator from the ground up, 
if he didn't press on a rusty button that I'd thought was a rivet, and the whole ankle bracelet fell off on the floor with a clatter like an anchor chain running through a hall's hole. There's mighty few of my acts I'm ashamed of. I've been what some sour disposition fella has called a social pariah too long. But when I saw how Joe and I had been made a couple of monumental come-ons by three kids hardly sizable enough to be wearing knee pants, it made me feel that my worldly education had been neglected in the primary class. You can go, the sergeant says with a grin on his face that made me want to commit mayhem on him. There ain't no foolish ward connected with our county jail, and I'd hate to put you in with some I've got downstairs. They'd have your shirts in five minutes. Beat it and followed by a general chorus of audible smiles from the fifteen or twenty other miserable loafers who always hang around police courts to see some other poor devil get it in the spinal vertebrae, Joe and I tiptoed out of the station house, feeling the world weren't nothing but a dumbed hollow show after all. And as we sneaked around the corner to hide ourselves down in the railroad yard among the boxcars, I couldn't help but think of that passage in the scriptures where it speaks about a little child leading them. End of And the Child Led Them